The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. But okay. mm-hmm. sometimes being very tired lets me drop my inhibitions and gets that good weirdness out into the podcasting air. Ah, uh, yes, that good Chris weirdness. It's my entire brand. It's the tank. That's the dankness. That's the um, tankness. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Backstage Gaming, dramatic takes on your favorite games. I'm Chris. And I'm Dylan. And we're here to actually record a real episode. Thank you for staying with us last week, as all we had to put up with our was uh, was our live show. But I hope you enjoyed it. We God knows we had a really fun time doing that whole live show thing. Thanks to any of you who are listening who also happened to be at Beat Kitchen on the 16th, because we had a great time. It was really cool meeting a lot of people there. Yeah, uh, it was the fucking coolest. But enough of living in the past. Let's wade violently into the future. Uh, it's episode 20. We are doing another instance of our writer's room concept. Uh, made famous, maybe, by the one time we did it in episode 10, where we took an old game that didn't really have much of a story to go off of. Uh, in that case, the original Metroid, and then we sort of brought made in some elements famous. of... Uh, Super Metroid, yeah. You know, famous to the three people that listen to our show. Um, uh, of course, naturally. Yeah. <laughs> we're famous, trust me. Uh, <laughs> but we're going to take a game and talk about how to make it into not a game. Uh, this time, Dylan's going to be taking the reins. We're going to be talking about a game that is part of one of his favorite series. Before before we get to that, I had a dark realization today. Right. I was at my store that I work at in order to have a house and food. And I became aware that at my store, we sell individual rolls of toilet paper. Okay. And more than that, I became aware of this because several people came through my line, each buying one singular roll of toilet paper. Okay. And maybe this is just me, but that speaks to me to a a level of malicious energy that I was not prepared for. <laughs> Chris, I feel like, you know, I'm I'm usually the one who reads too deep into things. <laughs> Hear me out. So, okay, I I shall. Is there anything on this earth more stressful than the realization that you are on your last roll of toilet paper? Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is, obviously there are things in the world far worse than that, but like, as far as mundane catastrophes go, if I wake up in the morning and I have to leave my house and it's like, well, I cracked into the last roll of my, my bathroom friend, that's all I'm going to be thinking about for the rest of the day. I too like to live dangerously. The fact that there are people <laughs> who will have that moment, that moment of existential fear as their day begins where they know that they are 
one roll away from the abyss. <laughs> and their solution to this is not to rush into the cushiony embrace of the safety of an 18-pack of toilet paper. 18? But instead, they... <laughs> what? I, like, I feel like eight is what... Maybe it's because uh, in our... Some of us like place, to feel secure in our futures, Dylan. No, what, what I was going to say was maybe it's because in our previous place we didn't have that much room to store that amount of toilet paper. So, like, you know, the eight pack sufficed. I guess that's fair. Um, but no, no, it like, if you have the room for it, 18. Yeah, like... I, the, I get it. The fact that there is a man out there in the world who knows that he is on his last roll of toilet paper and goes to the home goods section of the store and sees the 24-pack beckoning him <laughs> into this, like, month of security and says, no, I'll take one. I want to be in this position two days from now. That's the real survival horror. Like, that's that's <laughs> what I'm getting at. <laughs> like, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not on the right level. Maybe I'm maybe I'm living too safe. Maybe I'm not being Spartan enough with myself. <laughs> but I I witnessed this and I just had this moment of like, who are you and how did you gain this strength? Now now, Chris, is can this, can you learn? Is, can, are these single roll toilet papers? Is it Charmin Ultra? No, because what you think is enough might be too much. <laughs> And you can, you can, I, I, pay me, Charmin, for me to do the rest of this bit. <laughs> but, like, you're a Sith. You're a Sith Lord if you go out and buy a single roll of toilet paper. Especially when that single roll of toilet paper costs three goddamn dollars. Oh, my God. Like, you're a capitalist Sith. Anyway, okay. that's Chris's so, toilet talk I'm, for the week. I'm going to I'm going to say this real quick and then we will drop all mention of toilet paper. Okay. Probably not, good. Who knows? All I'm going to say is that driving 6 hours and going to multiple rest stops from Chicago to Cleveland. One of the things I was thinking recently was, man, maybe when I go on these trips, maybe I should just keep a roll of decent quality <laughs> toilet paper on me. <laughs> Because okay. let me tell you, Chris, there is no fresher hell okay. than but the single ply. <laughs> I Okay, here's here's the issue. I agree with you. Okay. I'm with you. Okay. But imagine the single dad from Wisconsin driving cross-country <laughs> with his kids to go to Sleeping Bear Dunes in Michigan, and they get out... In that case, you would get a multi-pack. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you're Gerald Beesmith, single dad from Wisconsin. Oh, we've been in the car for a long time, kids. Don't worry, I know you're Ansley. Let's just pull off at this rest stop. Oh, look, there's probably not going to be much of a line at the bathroom. There's only one, one other car, and who's that getting out of it? Oh, why, it's a strapping young man, and... He brought his own toilet paper. Kids, next rest stop. We're not getting out at the same rest stop as this oh, sex it's not pervert. That bad. It's why? Why? I there's something again. I want to say I agree with your impulse because it's true. There is no there is no greater horror than reaching for toilet paper and being like, ah, it's made of what appears to be it's powdered milk paper. held together by dreams. <laughs> but also, if someone else sees you get out, like, okay. There are two possibilities of what people are going to see. They're either going to see you get out of the car with your partially used toilet friend, which is bad, 
Okay, okay, so you Or they're gonna what? see gonna you stop. leave the restroom with a partially used roll of toilet paper, which is worse. <laughs> Alright, like, I'm gonna I'm gonna start I'm gonna I'm gonna shake up the formula real quick. Okay. Uh, thank you for listening to Backstage Gaming. If you like <laughs> us, you can talk to us on social media. Use the hashtag BSGpod so that you can tell Chris that bringing your own toilet paper is a perfectly reasonable thing. <laughs> oh my god. Like, as if you couldn't tell by, by now, we're a gaming podcast. Um, yeah, I was about to say that too. <laughs> we talk about games and game narratives and how games tell stories and how games connect with their audiences because we're theater makers and that's what we do. Let's get back to our actual topic and stop being freaks about toilet paper. <laughs> this conversation um, isn't over. We're gonna we're gonna resume this yeah, after the episode. Everyone, uh, you know. everyone uh, tweet at... T-H-A underscore D-I-L-A, the Dilla, and let him know what kind of freaky sex pervert you would think he was if you saw him wandering around in public with his special toilet friend. Well, when you put it like that. <laughs> I love you. Uh, I'm not sure you do. I love you. I'm just trying to save you from this unconscionable course of action. Fine. The road to hell is paved with soft butt fabric. <laughs> Is that the name of this episode? Please tell me that's the name of this episode. It's definitely going to make it into the also included list. Uh, (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Welcome back to the writer's room. This is a bit that we did for episode 10, and it seems like we're just going to keep doing it every 10th episode, where we take a game that we like or a game that we think is interesting and try to figure out our way of translating it into a different medium. Maybe it'll be a stage show, maybe it'll be a film, maybe it'll be, you know, something else, something that we have a little bit more actual expertise in than game design, because we don't really have any other than playing a lot of games. We Uh, just like them. We just think they're neat. Yeah. (laughs) Neato. Uh, Dylan, what game are we talking about this week? All right, gonna jump right to it, because we talked for eight minutes about toilet paper. (laughs) And it's the Uh, best eight minutes of this podcast yet. (laughs) It's true. Um, we we are talking about Resident Evil. Which Resident Evil, Dylan? Resident Evil as a concept. But, 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 but Dylan and Chris, don't you know there's a lot of Resident Evil movies directed by that guy whose name I forget? Paul W.S. Paul Anderson. Paul W.S. Anderson. And yes, you're right, Rando. Yep. They exist, and more importantly, we're going to talk about how I would do a Resident yeah. Evil movie. <laughs> so... The issue is, and we'll we'll go much more into detail, but to address that elephant in the room right away, the Resident Evil games, at le- at the very least, Resident Evil One and Two, and then with Resident Evil Six, we no Seven Six was not a return to form. Uh, no. <laughs> Resident Evil <laughs> One and Two, not. and most recently Resident Evil Seven, are great examples of very traditional horror and there are a lot of things you, you that... might even want to say most recently the remake of resident evil there you 2. go we're still slightly topical uh <laughs> the, those games are horror games through and through we've talked a little bit about elements of this in the past but there's a lot of the actual design of those games things like limited ammunition and blind corners and like there's a lot built into the meat of play that makes them very frightening to play, not just in, like, a jump-scare kind of way. The Resident Evil movies are much more akin to, say, the games Resident Evil 5 and 6, which are less 
horror and more run-around shooty games that happen to have you shooting zombies. Is that a yep. fair sort of that breakdown? Is, I, I could be a stickler and be like, well, in 4 and 5, they're not actually zombies, but, you know, you, you basically... Shut up, toilet pervert. I'll probably cut that part because that was just mean, and I don't want people to think I actually hate my sweet friend. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> or you can just keep that back yeah. down. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, the existing Resident Evil movies are... Shall we say they have received mixed reviews? Uh, they are very pulpy. Let's yes. go with that. Uh, and they are much more concerned with fast-paced action set pieces and some gross-out moments than they are with like Actual dread or suspense horror. or horror. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're gonna be, you know, that's the that's the divide, and so we're gonna try to be looking at how you would do a Resident Evil film or play that really feeds off of that sense of fear and dread and suspense that you get in Resident Evil 1, Resident Evil 2. And to sort of dive into that, Dylan, why don't you tell us a little bit, in case people haven't listened to the episodes where we talked about this before, what do the Resident Evil games do well to tap into horror and to make you as the player feel fear? Okay, so to focus on what people commonly cite as uh, Resident Evil's greatest strengths, um, there is a feeling of vulnerability that you wouldn't get from most games. Uh, especially, like, when the first Resident Evil game came out, I there are a lot of accounts of people who, you know, pick the game because it has, like, a very stereotypically macho soldier-type-looking dude on the cover. And, you know, then they play the game and they're like, oh, I don't have a gun. Because I think when you pick the the macho soldier guy, you actually start with only a knife, and you have to find a gun. Essentially what I'm getting at is that the Resident Evil games are very good at making you feel vulnerable. You're not just shooting your way through wave of wave of zombies. There are actually surprisingly few numbers of zombies in the game, but the trade-off is there's also a surprisingly limited pool of ammo in the game. Um, all of the... There, there are no, like, respawns or random drops or anything, all the ammo you find in the game is finite. And so it is possible for you to use more ammo than kill zombies, than zombies that you drop. The balance of the game is like kind of making your way through a really a fun house of puzzles while trying to either avoid zombies or kill the ones that you only really need to kill so you can get through the rest of the game. The fact that you've got, on a global scale, limited resources with which to complete the challenges the game presents to you creates this great sense of, like, impen like every moment and every bullet you fire, like, matters and kind of hurts to use. One of the other things that uh, the early Resident Evil games do that is so, 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 so cool that I wish more games nowadays did, and I understand why they don't, but, like, boy howdy, it's an example of hardware limitations being a rad thing. Resident Evil 1 and 2 are all fixed camera angle games. What do I mean by uh, that? One, it, two, three, and a game for the Dreamcast. Yeah. And Zero. And the remake of one. <laughs> thank I'm you. sorry. Thank you, Dylan. No, thank <laughs> you. you. Like, you you know more about this series than I do. I, I know what I ha know from ha watching you play and from playing a little bit of one and two, like, way back in the day. That's fair. Um, let, me, let me rewind a little bit. Back when 3D gaming was, like, first becoming a thing, for one thing, hardware limitations were much more real. So rather than fully, like, 3D modeling everything in the game, a common workaround that you see in a lot of early adventure games, you see it in a lot of the early 3D Final Fantasies, and you see it in Resident Evil 1 and 2, 
is they would create a basically like a matte painted background, kind of yeah. like you what, what you would see in like a Hanna Barbera cartoon where the background doesn't move, so they're able to do one painting and then do the hand animation on top of that. In games, you'd have one matte background and like maybe the camera can pan up and down or left and right to see more of that matte background, but it is a static background that then you'd only have to render 3D models walking on top of. Yeah. The Resident Evil games use this so well because frequently the camera that they will place to shoot is positioned in such that, like, you can't see around a corner until you make that corner. Or there will be some, like, the cameras are frequently positioned in these rooms such that there is information that you do not have about what is happening in the full scope of the room. And because the camera is fixed, you can't get that information until the game, until, like, you move to the position where the game allows you to. And that is so good and so smart. Um, <laughs> full disclosure here, I, Chris Wilson, am a coward. <laughs> I love horror as a genre. I love thinking about it. I love... The way that I fr frequently put it is I love having watched horror movies. I love being able to talk about horror movies from the position of having seen them at one point in the past. I hate <laughs> sitting through horror movies because they make me very uncomfortable and frightened. That's, um, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but at their best moments, those like camera position things in Resident Evil are similar to the kind of cinematography that you see in really good and effective horror. I'm thinking specifically of... Uh, the Babadook, which came out in 2016, 15? I think 15. I, I don't know. Um, I was too scared to watch it. It's so good. It's one of I the know best horror movies of the last decade. It I, hurt me to watch. I spent most of the movie in like a full body clench with one hand, like a hand over one eye. Uh, <laughs> but it's so good. And there's so many shots in that movie where you can either like see way more like they'll position the camera such that like you see the character that this shot is of in the foreground but then also over their shoulder you can see like all the way down the hallway behind them oh, I hate that. and so like even if nothing happens there you can see it and because of the kind of movie it is you think that something's gonna happen back there yeah or they'll position it such that like the audio cue is making you know that something is in the room, but because of the way the shot is positioned, you can't see what that might be. And it's Resident like, Evil does that really yeah, well. Yeah, Resident Evil, I, that's what I kind of wanted to loop back to with this, is sound design is another area that the Resident Evil games do. They use the, that fact that they are constraining what you can see to add in sound effects that hint at what you might not be seeing. It's so good. Uh, there is a moment in... Resident Evil 1, most specifically in the remake, because I don't remember if it was in the first one, or in, like, the actual original, where, like I said, you know, there's that camera angle situation where you come into a hallway that, like, banks on a sharp right turn, and you can't see what's around the corner, but you can see that there is a window, and you can tell that because there is moonlight shining through the window and putting, like, you know, a nice clear square patch of light on the wall. And, like, the second time you enter that get that room, you hear a rattling noise. And then when you come to that same screen again, you see that, that rattling noise is because there is a the silhouette of a human figure like tapping on the window trying to get in. And it's a zombie and it's the worst thing. It's so scary. <laughs> and then I'm pretty sure the next time you come back there, that zombie's gone and the window is broken. Yeah. And Either it's things like the zombie's like... gone and the window is broken or you come back and the zombie does burst through yeah. the window. And it's things like that coupled with the fact that you know there are a set number of zombies that are wandering the mansion, that, like, 
all build into this culmination of like not only is it being presented in a frightening way, but the actual mechanics of the game are reinforcing that fear of like you know that that zombie has to be somewhere now because that's the way the game works. It's so good. But we need to take this and translate it into something that you're not playing through as an active participant, but something that you were watching, or in my case, half-watching while also gripping a stuffed animal and trying not to poo yourself. Well, you know, if you had a personal roll of toilet paper. <laughs> it's my personal pan potty. Oh, God. Um, anyway. Um, yeah, so I guess there were there's a couple ways my brain has been tackling this. And I guess to start with, we'll go with like the straightforward, obvious way. But there's actually an angle to this approach that like... I thought of last week, and I'm really excited to talk about it. Right. But it's also really weird and out there. Good, spring as far the, as spring video the game adaptations go. So let's start with the the standard movie approach. You could, you know, Resident Evil is heavily inspired by Night Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, the uh, George George R. Romero movies, and so you could you could really take that approach, but like also give it like the B movie slant. That okay. Night of the Living Dead is a B-movie. Yes, but you very much so, like, I was about to say. Like, I don't mean B-movie, I mean, like, kind of throw in that, like, hard-hitting Hollywood blockbuster, like, Rambo or John McClane. Like, kind of have it, like, start off with the characters very vulnerable, and ammo is scarce, and there is a lot of traditional zombie horror in the films. Mm-hmm. And then, by the when you get closer to the climax, it kind of builds and swells, and in my mind, I have, like, almost this diehard type uh, approach where, like, John McClane has two bullets left, and uh, Hans Gruber is at the top of Nakitomi Plaza, and, you know, it, it, it kind of just reaches that, like, peak of action. Yeah. Uh, because I think a huge thing that makes these Resident Evil games work is that you go from afraid and not really knowing what's going on and not understanding any of these zombies to... As the player, you understand their behavior. They become something quantifiable. That be- they become predictable, and you go from a, a state of feeling powerless to knowing how to navigate uh, these situations. Yeah, you become competent, but you never feel invincible no. because because you know you have such scarce resources to work with. Even though you know how to solve the puzzles, they still don't become trivial, which is a very cool sort of tightrope that the game walks. I I think that's interesting. I think it would be cool to see that level of, like, getting a character to that point of, like, I know what I have to do, now I just have to fucking do it. (laughs) Right. Um, I think it's telling that in Resident Evil 2, there is an unlockable game mode after you beat the game called, uh... it's, It's something like last... Okay, so there's fourth survivor. There are, like, two game modes. Basically, both of them, you are put in the middle of the mansion or the police station or whatever the location is, and your only option, your only goal is instead of doing puzzles and navigating the mansion, your only goal is to get to one room in a linear path. The only problem is that in comparison to the original game, there are the whole place is flooded with enemies. Um, like, no, way you. more than you've ever had to deal with in the story. Um, and so it, it's kind of the ultimate test of how well do you know these enemies? How well do you know 
yourself and your limitations. How well do you know the weapons? It's like the ultimate test of you as an expert, of you as an action hero, as opposed to you as someone who is vulnerable and has to think and plan out ahead. That's very cool. It's really cool. I've never beaten any of those. (laughs) (laughs) They're really tough. But anyway, yeah, so that's, that's kind of like the boring answer to what a Resident Evil movie should be. I say boring, but, like, honestly, I feel like a lot of people would be satisfied with that. Um, All you really have to do is kind of keep it close to the plot, which is it starts out and you're in the spooky mansion. And then, like, as you learn more and more, you realize that scientists were behind it all along. (laughs) But I guess that's a good segue into what I would do. With Resident Evil, I think a lot of people, not just us, including, like, journalists and fans, a lot... When they talk about the horror of Resident Evil, they always talk about the mechanical horror aspect, the survival horror. Yeah. Which is what we just spent the last uh, 10, 15 minutes doing. I want to kind of shake it up a bit. Okay, Um, hit me. So, playing the Resident Evil remake and replaying Resident Evil 2, I kind of realized that there is also a narrative horror that doesn't really get talked about. Tell me more, tell me more. (laughs) So, in the first game... I think the most interesting thing about Resident Evil 1 is that when you start playing it, or at least the remake of Resident Evil 1, when you start playing it, you're not sure if the cause of these zombies are due to some weird freak science mishap, like a Frankenstein story, or if it's a cult. And that's because you are navigating this spooky mansion and there are all these puzzles. You need to collect these masks to open a coffin. Uh, it's, it's very weird and... When you are a fan of the series, you're like, uh, that's just how the games are structured. And it's because they're hiding a giant Umbrella Inc. laboratory underneath. For people who've never played Resident Evil, Umbrella Inc. is the source behind these uh, zombies. They're a pharmaceutical company that is developing how to kind of reanimate the dead to create bioweapons that they can sell to the military. It's all very schlocky, but like also fun. Yeah, And so I think... The, the cool thing, the horror to me of Resident Evil, of its story, is that it, it kind of takes this corporation and turns it into a cult. Okay, so it's almost like part of the horror is in not knowing what's happening, but then as you find the answers, it just becomes worse, is kind of what you're getting at? Yes and no. <laughs> you're going to have to stick with me yeah, for no, a I'm, bit. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm, I'm following along. Resident Evil 2, the horror of Resident Evil 2 is that... So Resident Evil 1 takes place in a mansion, which is a cover for experiments that Umbrella is doing. In Resident Evil 2, the entire city that Umbrella is focused in gets infected. And this happens for a multitude of reasons, but the ultimate takeaway is that basically somehow rats get infected with the virus and the they spread it. Oh, so it's a bubonic plague. It's, it's of a bubonic. It's literally a bubonic 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 plague. It's a bubonic. Fuck. <laughs> what you said. <laughs> uh, and so they they spread the virus, and everyone gets infected that way. But not only that, there is a side plot where, you know, after the events of the first game, the main characters from that game are trying to expose Umbrella. But because the Umbrella's basically paid off the government, they have the police chief in their wallet, and they frequently go back and forth to the police station to deal with them through the sewers, so they have people who work for them in the sewer system. And so the horror of Resident Evil 2 is, like, 
the idea that like society has failed us and it has <laughs> but, caused like but, the worst possible thing to happen but uh, aim amoral pharmaceutical companies would never buy out the government <laughs> 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 anyway what were you saying <laughs> uh, anyway uh yeah so <laughs> you know and i i haven't played resident evil 3 and i haven't beaten code veronica so i can't say like every resident evil has this kind of uh, narrative horror as well as mechanical horror but like you know look at resident evil 4 what's that about it's about a beaten up spaniards it's it, nope it's about <laughs> religious extremists damaging america by kidnapping the president's daughter and it really in retrospect has kind of a post 9-11 vibe yeah to holy it. cow <laughs> hang on <laughs> like they're not wearing turbans but like i don't know if that was intentional that like that's kind of the flavor that that game has yeah wow but um, in retrospect, I'm like, oh, wow, huh. <laughs> like, it's about, like, religious extremists, it, religious extremists trying to infiltrate the U.S., and you play as a U.S. government agent to stomp them out, but also plot twist at the end, they once lived normal, peaceful lives, and you're kind of a monster. <laughs> in the credits of Resident Evil 4, uh, it shows a bunch of artwork of the villagers that you've been spent the last 20 hours shooting and murdering violently living peaceful lives and it really kind of puts things into perspective in an uncomfortable way <laughs> wow i'm reading too deep into resident evil 4 moving on um i mean i think that if the if there's if there's a tagline for our show that's it's reading too deep into things yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah anyway uh so i've been beating around the bush long enough essentially what i want to get at is that we can look at if I were to make a horror movie about Resident Evil, I would take that social commentary approach. I, I would make a movie about maybe you as an umbrella researcher and the fucked up things you need to do to keep the secrets within the, you know, let's assume it's a mansion because in America the games are called Resident Evil. So, you know, maybe that is creating these weird, you know, creating these weird traps and booby traps, uh, secret doors... Uh, to confuse and disorient your employees. <laughs> I would, you know, like, maybe show some of the horrific things that you have to do uh, when experimenting on test subjects. You can you can make it a... <laughs> you can make it an evil version of The Office. You know? <laughs> and, you know, meanwhile, during all of this, like, the main character could be kind of losing their sense of self because not only are they disorienting their employees, but they themselves are on a pyramid scheme in a cult of profit, in the cult of you, you know what I'm trying to say, like you are you are stuck in this cult of a company trying to maximize profits. Yeah, I would be into that. I would. I honestly, I almost want to see that as like a Netflix style like miniseries. <laughs> I could like, see that. Give me like an eight episode season of this, with like every episode the curtain gets pulled back a little bit more. Yeah, I could see that being really cool. Like you're you're either an entry level like umbrella intern, <laughs> slowly peeling back the conspiracy, or you could. When I say you, obviously I'm talking about the protagonist yeah. or the audience surrogate, or you could uh, take the point of view of someone who like just recently got an umbrella promotion, and they're like, oh hey, so we're doing this thing with uh, the T virus, and you're like, oh the T virus, what's that? And then the plot kind of slowly reveals like oh shit i'm in too deep <laughs> but <Whoopsies>. like <laughs> oops all terrorists yeah exactly um i like this a lot 
Let me... Can I hit you with a weird take? Okay. Give me a Resident Evil audio drama. <laughs> Shit, we could do that, fam. <laughs> I mean, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're not that good. Um, well, I mean, we could work on Yeah, yeah, it. yeah. You know yeah. what? No, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Um, there are some very, very good horror podcasts out there. We saw one at the live show that we were at. There was a, a group oh, here in Chicago called Death Scribe. Uh, they're associated, so with, associated with the White Claw Theater Company. Uh, and they Okay, do, yeah, we're not that good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they do, like, every year they do a horror audio, like a horror radio play showcase. Uh, and they did a live show featuring some, like, the only time I've ever seen live Foley done like, as a part yeah. of the performance, and it was rad as hell. But there's that. There's also some really great horror, like, horror or at the very least, like, suspense and thriller-based podcasts, like uh, Limetown's a big one that they recently mm. got a season two, so they've been kind of notable recently. What was the one that the Night Vale people put out? Alice Isn't Dead. Um, yeah, that's what it was. Like, audio drama lends itself well to suspense because there's your a, mind makes it scary yeah there's an old adage uh among people who make horror that like the audience will always scare itself more than you can scare them and so removing the factor of what they can see and having it all be through audio storytelling and audio cues makes things a lot more tense because you as the majority of the world is sighted like you, that is your main way of consuming like information about the world around you so taking that away in an audio drama adds another layer of suspense to that and given all of the cool work that the resident evil games already do with sound cues and blind corners and things like that i think it would be fascinating to see like an audio like a, a true horror audio serial based in the resident evil world i don't know what that would be i think you could possibly do it as like the logs of the, like, you know, the radio comm chatter between the people exploring this mansion, like the police that you play as in the games. It could be, you know, the lab notes of the people working for Umbrella Corporation. Like, there are... Or you could just get go uh, completely away oh, from dude, the idea sorry. of doing it as, like, a diegetic thing that exists and just be like, we're going to do it as an audio, as, like, a radio play. Uh, but I think that could be a very cool thing. What were you going to say? Sorry, no, I just, I heard you talk about, like, the journals, and I'm like, oh, that would be such a cool thing, because, like, you know, that's another thing we forgot to mention, is that, like, a lot of the plot in Resident Evil is not conveyed through cutscene, it is conveyed through journal entries yep. and letters that you find and collect. Uh, was Resident and Evil 1 one of the first games that, like, really took that approach to narrative? That, the first that I can think of. It's definitely, um, I mean, it's got to be one of the first, because it was one of the first, like, really exploratory 3D games. Yeah, because I'm thinking, like, maybe Myst did that, but I'm not sure when Myst came out. Um, and I, you know, I there's a whole wealth of adventure games out there that I do not know enough about. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's an interesting thing. And that's become so ubiquitous in, like, exactly. expo so. exploration-based games is the this idea of, like, finding journal entries or audio logs or things to listen to or to read about the place that you're exploring. Oh, man. Hang on. We're, okay. we're going way off the deep end here, but we're probably nearing, <laughs> you know, end of episode territory. Yeah. So let like, me throw I don't, don't want to hang here too long. Uh, me, I said my piece. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let me throw this out there and then we can wrap up. Resident Evil, 
the epistolary novel. Oh, okay. For those of you who don't know, epistolary novels are a literary form where it's a novel, it's a story told through letters. So the entire story is, like, presented as correspondences between people. Famously, technically, Frankenstein is an epistolary novel. Kind of. It, that it is The epistolary nature is much more of like a framing device for Frankenstein. Mm. But Frankenstein is like, if you peel it all the way back, it is a ship's captain writing a letter to his family about this weird guy he met in like at the North Pole and the story that guy told him. And that story is the story of Frankenstein. Dracula is also an epistolary novel, but there's another one that I... There's a book I stumbled upon in, like, the bargain bin a couple years ago called The Silent History. That is Mm -hmm. a, a... It's a novel about this idea that a generation of people were born without the capacity for language. Like, not just that they're mute or they're deaf or whatever, but, like, the neurological center of the brain that in most human beings lights up when they hear or read or whatever in any way consume like language that has meaning these people just don't have that Mm -hmm. and so it's like the novel follows like this like kind of insurmountable problem but it's all presented as like letters between people and interviews with scientists and like newspaper clippings and it's a really cool way of telling a story and just like if we're taking this idea of like so much of resident evil story is presented to you through these logs and these journal entries like give me that give me the story of resident evil as like pieced together by the conspiracy theorist up like exploring the ruins of a umbrella corp lab and like piecing together the charred letters and like office memos and shit okay like like I said, I'm going I'm going yeah. weird. Yeah, no, I, I dig it, I dig it. But like, man, someone better at writing than me make this happen. I I'll read your fanfic. <laughs> um, Could you imagine like kind of doing it in like a creepypasta format? Like uh yes. do you remember Ben Drowned? Yes. Okay, good. Cause like alright, so Oh boy, I have to explain Ben Drowned to Fuck our me listeners. Up. Uh okay, so Ben Drowned is in short, because I, I gotta make this short, it's a long story. It's about, it is a guy posting on a message board about how he he bought a used copy of The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask from a garage sale, Um, except it, didn't, it doesn't have, like, a label. And he, he plays the game, and the game, like, will have, like, weird glitches. Um, also, something important is that the first save file in the game has the name Ben in it. So he deletes the file... And then the game starts glitching out, and it starts going crazy. And it's, it's, I, I don't remember the particulars, but essentially, like, the game is haunted, and the game is trying to make itself psychologically distress the player. Um, and then it follows him, it doesn't follow him into the real world or anything crazy like that, but, uh, the person posting this on the board will upload clips of it, and just really unsettling stuff happens. Yep. And I feel like you could, take Resident Evil and, like, be, like, you know, like, another one of those creepypasta things about, like, the uh, discarded Disney uh, amusement park in some location where, like, it's haunted because, of course, it is. And, like, all the mascot costumes get up and walk around on their own or whatever. You You could very easily do a creepypasta about a pharmaceutical company where... 
Uh, like, there are memos and notes from people about all the weird messed up shit that's going on there. And, like, you know, you can... Because people don't really b- buy creepy pastas. like, you can just be like, yeah, this is a Resident Evil story, but please check your brain at the door. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think that would be really cool. If we're willing to get weird and experimental, there's a lot of cool things that, like, the general sense of suspense and, like, way of building the world that Resident Evil has that you could do very cool things with. And all would feel in the spirit of Resident Evil. Arguably much more than some films that bear the name. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like that probably does it for us for this week, unless you have anything else you want to throw out there. No, I think think we're good. Rad. This is fun. I, I like our writer's room chats. This one was a little bit less... I think we were we were more comfortable with the idea this time than we were. Yeah. When well, we I mean, I think I think the the problem the first time was we were like, all right, how the fuck do we do a move like make a movie or a story out of Metroid because Metroid is something that is so particular to yeah. being a video game. <laughs> yeah, I still think like, we 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 had some fun with that one. Oh um, no, that that one was a blast. I think like this one we felt less compelled to try to justify our decisions and just said, these are our decisions, yeah. so let's roll with them. I like it. Thank y'all for listening. I hope you liked listening to us ramble about horror concepts and the Resident <laughs> Evil series. Zombies and toilet paper. Zombies and toilet paper. There's our episode title. Um, <laughs> if you think that a future Resident Evil game should have a puzzle where you need to replace the role of toilet paper, please message us at Super Best Friend Cast. <laughs> Thank, thank you for listening to Backstage Gaming. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> that was accidental. That was an accidental send-up to a, a podcast that I love. Well, there you go. no longer anything. It's no more. Well, I meant to say BSG Pod. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this. While Dylan's dying, let me just say thank you for listening. We really enjoyed having you here. If oh, you God. like what we're doing, please check us out at our website. That is bsgpod.com. There you can find our episodes, you can find bios about me and Dylan, you can find a contact form if you want to shoot us anything that you are thinking about, and we would really just appreciate you, if you like what we're doing, taking the time to find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Spotify, on the Google Play Store, leave us some iTunes reviews, that'll really help us move up in the metrics and like, you know, garner some more attention from people that aren't already our friends. Every review and every rating means a ton to us. We also really enjoy hearing from you on social media. Dylan, tell us tell us about that. Yeah, we do have social media. You can check us out on Facebook. You can check us out on Twitter. Our handle is at BSG underscore cast. We have a YouTube. And if you like any of the stuff we talk about, or if you want to tell me that I'm full of shit or cuss me out for mentioning the super best friends, you can get my attention by using the hashtag BSG pod. Yep. <laughs> if, if you like the artwork that we use on our site that was provided to us by our friend Brennan French, you can check him out on his Squarespace, uh, brennanfrench.squarespace.com. That is B-R-E-N-N-E-N hyphen French.squarespace.com. He also has an Instagram, uh, Instagram slash Brennan French Arts. That is B-R-E-N-N-E-N-F-R-E-N-C-H. A-R-T-S. I still say it's the world's biggest regret that he doesn't ha- didn't get the Instagram handle Beefarts. <laughs> Maybe I'll buy Beefarts.com and just get that for him. Good. Anyway. It just, it's, it's just a copy account. I love it. Thank you, as always, to our friend BioQuery for the use of our theme song, Dot Sound Radio Volume 1 Instrumentality. It's super cool. He's got a new EP out called Post Human Angst that is just 
fucking rad. And you can find all of his music at his SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash bioquery. That's soundcloud.com slash B-I-O-Q-U-E-R-Y. Plug time. Listen to the current season of, or the current arc of The Unexplored Places, an actual play podcast that Dylan is appearing in. Listen to... I'm actually not sure if we're still on that arc. We should double check that. Well... I Either, was on yeah. an arc of The Unexplored Places. And it was very good. Also listen to Unwell, a Midwestern gothic mystery. It is a very fun, spooky uh, Midwest podcast made by some, another alum of Kenyan, of Kenyan College, the school that Dylan and I went to. And I am in the final episode of the first season, which should be launching in like three weeks. So get caught up. It's also just like really good. And I found out today in an email that the... Uh, people who are fans of Unwell include the sound designer from Jurassic Park. <laughs> so oh, that's, that's awesome. kind of rad. I've been kind of <laughs> geeked out about that all day. Also get ready. I don't know when this is going to happen, but I'm currently in recording for another audio drama podcast called The God's Head Incidental. You can find them on Twitter. I think it's at God's Head Incidental or a God's Head cast, something like that. Awesome. No idea when that's going to launch. We're still very much in production on that, but be hyped for that. It's going to be super cool. And I think that's all the plugs we have. We don't have a live show to plug anymore because that nope. already happened. Yep. So they can hear it if they want. Yeah, it's really fun. It's like a quick, breezy 16 minute episode. And I think it's like one of the most fun things I've gotten to do in like a year. <laughs> so uh, thank you all for listening one more time. And as always, we will talk. Wait, hang on. This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Hey, Chris, do you think we're in a cosmic horror story? Because our sanity sure is slipping. I love you. Uh, (laughs) And I love you, you, listeners. Come back and let us love you more next week when we're back with more backstage gaming. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye now. Oh, my God. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.